Uh, if you could, let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And let's read the first three verses. Um, today, or this morning, we'll, may just be an introduction to this book. We may get into the three, first three verses, but I somehow doubt it. Significant book, a very significant book. And especially in the day and the time that we live in today. Let's read the first three verses of Revelation chapter 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Near. As we get into this book, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible book. And if you think of it, the book of uh, Genesis is, is the beginning and the book of Revelation is the ending. And the, and the rest of the Bible is sort of like bookended by these two really important books. Uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings or commencement. And we find that the book of Revelation is really the book of the end, the, of speaking of end things or the consummation of all things. And it really is that. And I love the differences between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. I think it's fairly remarkable that in Genesis we have the commencement or the beginning, uh, the, the origin really, of the heavens and the earth. And in the book of Revelation we see the consummation of heaven and earth. That there'll be a new heaven. This current heavens and earth, all of it, will be dissolved one day, the Bible tells us in Revelation, with fervent heat. And then a new heavens and a new earth will be created and where dwells righteousness. And we will be there forever. That's the eternal state for the believer. But then it goes on. Also in the book of Genesis, we have the entrance of sin and the curse. And finally in Revelation, we see the end of the curse and the end of sin. In the book of Genesis, we see the beginning, the beginnings of Satan and his activities. And in the book of Revelation, which we had before us, is really the doom. We see the doom of Satan and his activities. In Genesis, we see the tree of life relinquished. When Adam and Eve, they were given access to this tree of life, but God told them to not take of the fruit. And then in Revelation, the tree of life, the tree of life is regained. It's regained in the, in, the, in the new Jerusalem. That tree, those trees will be along the river, and the tree of life will be there. And it'll be regained. In Genesis, we see that death makes an entrance. After the sin of man, we see death coming in. The Bible says that in dying they shall die because of the sin that they committed, Adam and Eve in the garden. And in Revelation, we see that death makes an exit. Finally, death and hell put to an end, cast into the sea or into the lake of fire, never to be influencing ever again. And we also see in Genesis how sorrow begins. We see it in Genesis 3.16, the fall of man. And then we see in Revelation how sorrow is banished. No more tears, no more crying. The book of Revelation is 
eschatological, and that's a really fancy word, and I hate to lay that on you, but eschatology is really nothing more than the study of last things. And it speaks of uh, things pertaining to the current, of this current age and also Jesus Christ's millennial kingdom and beyond. That's what this book is about. It's about eschatology, the study of last things. And it contains, when we think of the apocalypse, it contains the apocalypse, but according to our modern definition of it, and we'll look at that, but it's also apocalyptic literature, which means, again, that it's speaking of things concerning the end of the world. There is an end to this current world. The Bible speaks clearly of that. There is an end of this world. But those in Jesus don't have to worry because the Bible says that there is coming a new heavens and a new earth. It's very plain in the scripture for us. And when we think of of the book of Revelation, it's also been called the, the apocalypse. And the apocalypse has really two different meanings. In our modern definition, we think of apocalypse and we think of the complete and final destruction of the world. And the things in it, that is certainly a definition of the apocalypse. And that's what most people think of. But the apocalypse actually means, it comes from a a Greek word, apocalypsis, which means to unveil or to reveal. To unveil or to reveal. That's the real meaning of the word. So we have in our culture an understanding of the apocalypse and what it really is supposed to be. The revelation of Jesus Christ is literally the apocalypsis of Jesus Christos. The unveiling of a person, and not only just of a person, but events surrounding his second coming. And that's what the apocalypse is. It's very different from the word apocrypha, which sounds very similar, but apocrypha literally means hidden. It means hidden. And these are books of the Bible that weren't in the canon of Scripture because of they had... Uh, uh, the, the facts in it weren't completely right, and they didn't gel with the rest of the scripture. And even the authors were dubious. But Revelation is not a dark book, even though it has some things in it that we don't understand. But it's a book of clarity. It's supposed to be a book of clarity and a book of unveiling. And when we think of all the books in the Bible, Revelation, along with the book of Genesis and the book of Daniel, they're the most attacked by the devil. They're the most attacked by liberal scholars and, and, and those who hate God and hate his people. They're the most attacked books. In, the, in, in Genesis, for instance, is uh, hated and attacked because it is the book of origins, And it unequivocally and unashamedly speaks of creation by God in six literal days. Not using millions of years to accomplish things. No, God spoke and and, in six 24-hour periods, he created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. All the living creatures. Is your God so small that he can't speak and make things happen? No, he's a very big God. If he spoke everything into existence, he could make anything happen. Anything happen at any time he desires, if he so chooses. Is that the God that we serve? Is it not? Do we believe it? I would encourage you to believe in who he says he is. Believe in who he says he is. But the book of Genesis is under attack and it's hated because it makes promises And it refutes the darling pet of our culture and the great lie of mankind. And what is that? Evolution. It does. It is the darling pet of our culture. (laughs) 
and the great lie of mankind. And it's also hated because God makes promises to a specific group of people and giving them a specific land, the Jews, a specific land through which the Savior would be born and save the world from its sin and usher in everlasting righteousness. And the ungodly, they hate the book of Daniel because of the pinpoint accuracy of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and the kingdoms of the world and ultimately their destruction and the setting up of Jesus Christ's kingdom in the millennium. They hate that. The devil hates that book. Very few books have been under attack like Genesis and Daniel and certainly the book of Revelation. And the ungodly hate it, uh, hate the book of Revelation because... It unveils the glory of Jesus Christ and foretells in great detail with stone-cold certainty the judgment of God upon an unbelieving and wicked world that has rejected Christ. And the ungodly hate it because in chapter 19 it speaks of the return of Christ to this earth to set up his millennial reign and it speaks of the doom of those individuals who have opposed him and rejected him all of their life. And the world that we live in now does not tolerate this kind of confidence and matter-of-fact speaking, does it? Whenever anybody comes up and says something in an absolute way, we're immediately hit um, hit in the face with opposition. Because we live in a world where everything is changing and everything is liquid, everything is relative. But God says what he means, and he means what he says. And I believe that. I believe there is absolute truth. And as a Christian, we need to understand that there is an absolute truth. You've got it in your lap right now. Absolute truth. That means that sin is a sin. That means that everything that he has in this book is, you can take it to the bank. You can bet your life upon it. You could bet the life of every single human being that's ever been born on it. You can bet everything. You can put in all the chips, so to speak, and say, I believe that this is the word of God. It is unequivocal. It is truth. But the world we live in doesn't tolerate that. And the world is becoming increasingly disinterested in facts and the truth. It has enjoyed being lied to, actually. Isn't that what uh, the Lord said to Jeremiah when Jeremiah was ministering to the the children of Judah? What did he say in Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 30? This is what he said to them, and I think it's true of us today. He says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land of Israel, specifically. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And here's the dangerous and horrible thing. And my people love to have it so. Maybe not you specifically. I'm sure that most of us don't agree with that. But at that time, they did. The people of Judah, they, they, they loved being lied to. They loved being the prophets lying to them. And they loved the priests having their own power. And he goes on, he says, but what will you do in the end? That's the question that God has. What will you do in the end? And see, we're all the same. Isn't that what it says in Psalm 103? It says, he knows our frame. In other words, he understands our constitution as individuals, as people that he created. He understands our frame. He knows our constitution, but he also remembers that we are dust, (laughs) and we're kind of all the same. And maybe not you this morning, but our culture has enjoyed being lied to. They've enjoyed being told and even propagating the fallacy that there is no absolute truth, 
that everything is relative and that God is dead. That's what they believe. Many of the universities are filled with professors teaching your children that you're spending lots of money to go to. They're teaching them that God is dead. Isn't that the newspaper? The New York Times in January 9th, 1966, section 8, page 146. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. God is dead in the New York Times, 1966. And no doubt they were influenced by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. You remember him. He seems to have popularized this phrase, God is dead. He used the phrase to express the idea that the Enlightenment had eliminated the possibility of the existence of God. In other words, our, the Enlightenment, the education, the, the new understanding that we have can replace God. In fact, in his uh, uh, collection that he had written in 1882 called Gay Science, that's literally the name, or if you want the German, it's yeah, Die Frohlicke Wissenschaft. For those of you who are German, you're probably going, did he pronounce that right? I think I did. But this is what he said. This is what he said in this publication. He says, God is dead, and I quote, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Those are the words of Frederick Nietzsche who coined the term God is dead, and even Time Magazine in April 8th, 1966, had red in red on the front cover of Time Magazine, Is God Dead? But I can almost hear the newsboys coming through my headphones. Our God's not dead, he's surely alive, he's living. Everybody, right? Right? But our God is not dead, he's very much alive, Amen. He's alive forevermore. He, he, he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. I love that about him. And it's interesting that the, even the loudest voices against God have disappeared, and yet God and his word remains. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, verse, 20, or verse 35 of Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And all those who have put... Uh, put God and his word on trial, have been found guilty themselves, and they've been sentenced. I'd like to read to you one of my favorite excerpts. One of my favorite devotionals is uh, a devotional by William McDonald called One Day at a Time. And in December 19th of his devotional, I want to read this to you. He says, The word of God is not only eternal, it is absolute absolutely sure of fulfillment. In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus said that no one, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. A jot is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that resembles a comma or an apostrophe. A tittle is a stroke of a Hebrew letter. We might compare it to the bottom stroke of a capital E that distinguishes it from, from capital F. In other words, Jesus was saying that God's word will be fulfilled down to the minutest details. The minutest details. Julian the apostate, who was a Roman emperor who lived in uh, AD 31 through 36, he decided that he would disprove the Bible and discredit Christianity. And the particular passage he chose to disprove was Luke chapter 21, verse 24, which says, 
And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He began by encouraging the Jews to rebuild the temple. And according to Gibbon, in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, they went to work eagerly, using even silver shovels in their extravagance and carrying the dirt in purple veils. But while they were working, they were interrupted by an earthquake and by balls of fire coming from the ground, and they had to abandon the project. Almost 600 years before Christ, Ezekiel predicted that the eastern gate of Jerusalem would be shut and that it would remain shut until the prince would come. Many Bible students understand the prince to be the Messiah, and the gate, subsequently called the Golden Gate, was closed up by Sultan Suleiman in A.D. 1543. And then in, uh, in Kaiser Wilhelm's plan to capture Jerusalem, he hoped to enter by this gate in his pride, but his hope was dashed, and the, the gate remains closed. In fact, the gate is there today. In just a few weeks, we'll be going to Israel, for those of you who are going, and you're going to see that eastern gate. And as you look at it, You have to understand that the gate that's there is not the real eastern gate. The eastern gate that that was there when Jesus' day is several feet below. And they found it by accident one year when a a gentleman was walking by and he fell into this this tomb, really. It was was an Islamic tomb. And bones were in there. And they went and they they saw the top of the archway as they fell down into this hole. They saw the, uh, the the upper part of the arch of the original gate underneath, and that is the gate that is going to be referred of. But notice he goes on and he says, Voltaire, <laughs> he boasted that the Bible would be a dead book in a hundred years. But when the hundred years had passed, Voltaire was dead, and his house had become headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and Ingersoll made a similar boast. He said that we would have the, Bi- have the Bible in the morgue in 15 years, and it was he, not the Bible, who went to the morgue. The Bible outlives all of its critics, and you would think that men would wake up to the fact that the Bible is God's eternal word and that it will never pass away. But then, as Jonathan Swift said, there's, no, nothing, there's none so blind as they that won't see, that won't see. So the book of Revelation is not a book that's supposed to be sealed. It's supposed to be open and read by everyone. In fact, in the end, at the very end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 10, the angel speaking to John the apostle, he said to him, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. And it's interesting as we we embark on this book that the Lord has written concerning the gravity of the words and the prohibition of adding or subtracting anything from it. In Revelation 22, verse 19, it says this, And if anyone takes away the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. That's a pretty significant statement. So we should never take anything away from the word of God, nor should we add anything to it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, In the first verse, it says this. He says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. And here it is, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Later on in the same book, chapter 12, verse 32. 
Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Even Solomon in his Proverbs, chapter 30, verse 5, he says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And one of the wonderful things about the book of Revelation is it's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, and to those who keep it. The idea is to be obedient to it. And we see that in the very third verse of what we read this morning. You can read it, the third verse in chapter 1. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. At the very end of the book, it says this again, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. If I did nothing more than read the book of Revelation to you this morning, you would all be blessed as well as I would. If I just read it from cover to cover, we would all be blessed. (laughs) The scary thing is, any other word that I speak is really a liability. God anoints his word. God's word is blessed. We get blessed by hearing it. But I have a question for you this morning. And that is, if the Lord says it's a blessing, and it's a blessing for us to hear it and to, to keep it and to read it, why do so many pastors and even Christians stay away from it? There are many churches in the area here that won't get into this book. And I have some possible reasons for that, some possible answers to the question, why don't pastors and teachers teach this book on wholesale? Why don't they teach it? Why don't they read it? And let me give you a couple possible answers. Number one is that the devil doesn't want you to know. He wants you to believe that this is not a relevant book for you. And by the way, you really can't understand it. You can't understand it. That's what the devil will want you to say. And while there are challenging things in it, there's no doubt. There's pictures and imagery and symbolism. But often, the answer is right there in the text for us. And in fact, it's known that if you know the Old Testament, a lot of the things in the book of Revelation will start to make sense. And even within the book itself, it gives, it defines what some of these difficult things are. Let me just give you an example. Look at with me in verse 12 of the very first chapter. And this is just an example. He says, John speaking, he said, Then I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Underline that. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And I love this description. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Notice verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Underline that. You know, most people, when they see, okay, seven golden lampstands, seven stars. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've read this passage many times over my life, and, and sometimes things just pop out at you. Have you ever had that happen to you? Because you're already thinking in your mind, man, this is really heavy stuff. I can't understand it. And so you pass right by the definition of what these things are. Has it ever happened to you? Am I the only one? Maybe I am. But he says... 
He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. It's another title of Jesus. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Another name of Jesus, the one who lives, who was dead, and behold, alive forevermore. Amen. And he says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and here's our outline which we'll look at later, and the things which are, and the things which will shortly take place after this. But notice, here it is. He gives us, a, he defines what these lampstands and these stars are. Have you ever seen this, or have you glossed by it like I have for a number of years, and all of a sudden it just pops off the page? He says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my hand are the, are, and the seven golden lampstands. He says the seven stars are the angels or the pastors of these different churches, these messengers, these pastors. And the lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So it defines for us right here within the text. We don't have to go looking elsewhere It defines it for us, and it does that often. It'll define things, and some of the things that we don't quite understand, we we learn from the Old Testament. And some things, quite honestly, are things that John was having a hard time perhaps describing in in the language that he had available to him. How do you describe these locusts in chapter 9 coming up out of the abuso, out out of hell, basically, and coming to roam the earth and sting men and torment them for five months. How do you describe these demonic creatures? He does a pretty good job. And the, and, and the revelation is filled with imagery. And it uses a lot of similes. As. And, and, it, and he looked as this. It was like this. It was as this. There's a lot of those kinds of things. Because to accurately describe them really defies language. Because no one's seen these kind of things. And the second thing is that perhaps you're all tired of the hyper-interpretations in the books that many have spent a great deal of time on, speaking of conjecture and things that they really don't know, that we really don't know about. And there's been books written, things have been written, speaking tours have been, lecture series have been done on conjecture, rather than just what the Bible says. And for some reason, humankind, and I think this is true, I had to come to this understanding of my own old nature. For some reason, we're drawn to mystery and we're drawn to darkness. We like to be thrilled and we like to have knowledge of things that are unknown or taboo. This is why we like murder mysteries. This is why we like to hear juicy gossip about somebody else. It plays right into the hand of our lesser nature. So the question is, why shouldn't we then be drawn to the book of Revelation Because the devil does not want you to. What God says is a blessing, the devil says you can't understand it. In fact, you shouldn't even read it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can't understand. I mean, you've got to be like a a biblical scholar to understand this stuff. Don't even bother with it. See, the devil wants you to keep away. He wants to keep you away from the very blessing that God says he wants to give you. Does it not say... Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy... And keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It does say that, isn't it? Is it in your version? It's in mine. God wants to bless you, and that's what this book is all about. It's not to be a, a hiding away of the truth, but rather just the opposite, an unveiling, an apocalypsis, 
unveiling, taking the wraps off. So who wrote this book? I think you know by now that it's John. Revelation, it came from God the Father. It was given, it was penned by the Apostle John. He was the last surviving apostle. And even the early church fathers, for those of you who are interested in such things, men like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, they all have come to the conclusion and knew without a doubt that this author of this book was none other than John the Apostle. He was the only one not to die a martyr's death. All the other apostles died violent deaths, but not John. And the book of Revelation and the things that John witnessed may be a fulfillment of what was spoken in John chapter 21. You recall after uh, Jesus uh, restored Peter on the beach, remember when he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And then Peter was restored, and it says in verse 20 of John 21, it says, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is just John's way of, of talking of himself. In his gospel, he never said his name. But he always referred to himself as that disciple, or the other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but, Lord, um, but, but Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, you follow me, Peter. And then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if he wills that he remain till he came, what is that to you? And I believe that the book of Revelation is really a, f- a fulfillment of that very thing because now John, in a vision, in some kind, in spirit, he's now able to see what was coming in the future. He saw the coming of Christ. As if it had already taken place. God gave him a sneak preview of all of these things that are coming in the future. And so in a sense, he did. He saw these things. And John never mentioned himself in the gospel or his three letters. But here in the book of Revelation, four times he mentions his own name. Certainly here in chapter 1, verse 1. And he sent and signified it by his servant, or by his angel to his servant John. And then in the fourth verse of this very chapter, what does he say? John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. I think you get the point. It's John the Apostle. In verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in the very last chapter, he says, Now I, John, I saw and I heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Of course, the angel didn't receive the worship. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. So after the writing of John's letters... 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. John's reputation and him spreading the gospel got to the point back in the first century where he underwent a lot of persecution. In fact, Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at that time, he ruled from 81 to 96 AD. He ends up throwing, uh, tradition has it, uh, it's not in the Bible, but tradition has it that 
uh, uh, Domitian took John, threw him in a big vat of oil, boiling oil, to boil him to death. And for some reason, he didn't boil. They just couldn't kill this man. And so they decided, well, we're going to send him out to this penal colony, this Roman penal colony out in the Aegean Sea, about 24 miles off the coast of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey to us, or Ephesus. About 24 miles off the shore is this island called Patmos. He sends him out there to mine and to die. That was Domitian's desire. And it was there on that island as an old man, a very aged man, now frail and being persecuted. I mean, you know, you know, there's nothing worse than seeing a really elderly person being put to hard labor or enduring hardship like this. You know, uh, an elderly person should be kicking back in their, in their, uh, in their uh, glider. You know, putting their feet up, having their sons and daughters bring them tea. But not so with John. Here he was as an old man. And Eusebius, the historian, said that it was Emperor Nerva, who was the emperor uh, afterwards, it said that he was the one who released John. And John returned to Ephesus, where ultimately he died there of natural causes. And also, remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he, he gave his own mother, Mary, into the care of John the Apostle. Jesus looked at John and he said, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. I want you to take care of her now, John. And as John returned to Ephesus, Mary was there, and we believe that Mary is buried somewhere there in Ephesus as well. And so this this book was written somewhere in 95, 96 A.D., And it was written initially to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicean, Laodicea. These were seven physical, real churches at the time of John's writing. And Jesus wrote letters to each of these churches. And these letters were written so that each one should be read by the others. So even though they were individual letters, you'll notice at the very end of every one of those letters to the churches, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So even after the letter to the Ephesians, or to the, the, the Ephesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was meant not only to be read to Ephesus, but also that letter could be, could be read by all the other churches. Because one of the things about these letters that Jesus spoke to, these different churches, is that every one of them kind of encompasses every church that ever has existed. Everything that would happen within a church They all went through these things, and Jesus kind of sums them up and says, these are some things you're doing really well, but you got some things you got to look into. And they're all different. And they kind of, if you put them together, you can look at church history, and even in the churches in this country, and you'll see variants and flavors of this whole thing, of all these churches. Now, as we get into the book of Revelation, it's important to understand that there are different interpretations that can be taken, and there are four that are out there, and one is the preterist view. Preterist just means uh, something that is before. 
uh, or, or at, the, at the time. The preterist approach interprets Revelation as a description of the things that happened at the time John was writing. And certainly, as we look at the, the book of Revelation, those things didn't occur. Most of the book has not occurred. From chapters 4 onward to the end, they've not occurred, but the preterist view holds that everything happened within this time, and that's not what we hold to. And another one is the historist view, and this is a, uh, a, uh, an approach that, that views Revelation as a panoramic view of the church history, which is kind of interesting. Some of these different churches can mimic some of the church, uh, different times in church history. They, they, they do, uh, many of them, match up quite eerily to church history, but that's not what we hold to either. We don't hold to the idealist view, which, which believes that this is just something that happened, and then, you know, good and bad, these kind of events just happen time and time and time again. And so we can't hold to that either. But we do hold to the futurist view, and that is that everything from chapter 4 onward has not happened yet. Has not happened yet. In fact, when we get into... I want you to turn in, uh, to verse 19 of this first chapter, because before we really get into this, we need to look at the outline of this book. I want to encourage you in this too, because you know this is a, a 22 chapters, and you've already been told perhaps by some that this is an unknowable book, or maybe that it's something that you really shouldn't pay much attention to. And again, the devil wants to keep you away from the blessing that is here if we read it. But it's really not that difficult to understand. And certainly the outline of the book is fairly simple. Let's read verse 19. What does it say? It says, write the things which you have seen, number one. Write the things which are, number two. And the things which shall take place after this. So the things which you have seen, John has already described them to us. It's chapter one. In fact, specifically, Look, I mean, the, the, whole in, the whole entire chapter, but notice what happens in verse 9 of chapter 1. It speaks of the, 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 the uh, description of Jesus Christ. Write the things which you have seen. Well, what did you see, John? Well, verse 12 tells us, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, what? I saw. So he sees Jesus standing among the seven golden lampstands, representing the seven churches, he sees him, and he describes him in his glorified state, hair like, oh, you know, like um, white as wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, and all these descriptions. So he defines for us what that is. So there is the very first thing. Write the things which you have seen. We know that's chapter 1. And then he goes on and he says, And the things which are, these things which are, are the churches that he was going to be speaking to living at that specific time in history. Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira, Laodicea, writing to those churches. And that is encompassed for us in chapters 2 and chapter 3. If you look at chapter 2 and chapter 3, these are the letters to the seven churches. They're all contained within there. But notice what happens. And these churches really represent us. In some way or, way or form, they, they, they represent the church of all ages. You can look at these and you can find a little bit of yourself. You can look at these letters and maybe find the temperature of the church back maybe when your grandparents were going to church. 
You can look at these letters and find something that will sting you one way or another because they're written for that purpose, because they do affect us. They do, and they are written for us. But what happens, and notice what he says, that's the second thing. So we know the things which are, are chapters 2 and 3. Follow me? And then finally, and the things which will take place after this. And the things which will take place after this. After what? What was chapter 2 and chapter 3 about? It was about the churches, the church age. And actually, I want you to underline that word. After this, in that verse 19, that very last two verses, or two, two, um, two words, after this. It's a Greek word, metatauta. Metahauta, actually, metatauta. And the next time you see these two words together is in chapter 4. Turn with me to chapter 4. And this is how easy the outline of the book is laid out. It's right there in verse 19 of chapter 1. We call it the divine outline because it gives us the outline, right? The things which you've seen, chapter 1. The things which, is, which are chapters 2 and 3. And then the very next time we see after this, after this is metatauta. The very next time, the very next time you see both of these two words together, it's exactly, precisely in, ver- in chapter 4, verse 1. What does it say? After these. Those two words are the same exact words. And it's no mystery why that is. Because the Lord is giving us the outline of the book. Write the things which you've seen. Jesus in his glorified state. Write these things which are chapters 2 and 3. The church age and those physical churches at that time. And then, and he says, after these things, after this, he says in verse 19, that's metatauta. The very next time we see those two words exactly is in chapter 4. And it starts off exactly with that, after these. Literally, it's the same exact thing. You can look it up. Metatauta. So the bell in your head should be going off. After these things. And what happens after these things? Well, let's read it. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Meta Tauta. So John, as a representative of the church, he's caught up. What do we call that? After the church age is removed and a door is open in heaven and we hear the trump of God, what happens? What's the next thing on our timeline? The rapture of the church. Come up here. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. That's exactly what it's talking about. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. We will be caught up. We'll hear the trump of God, the voice of the archangel, and we will hear the trump of God, and we'll be taking up our body being transformed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about what happens to us physically. This is it. After the church age, after these things, metatauta, I looked up. Come up here. The church is raptured, and aren't you glad for that? And then, and then verses 4 and 5 are the vision of heaven. And then in, in, in chapter 5, we see the, the scroll being opened up by Jesus, the Lamb of God, one of his titles in the book. And then finally, in, in chapter 6, we see the opening of the seals. 
the seals, seven seals, and then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl judgments. And then finally we get to verse or chapter 19 where Christ comes back at the end of all of this tribulation, this great tribulation that's going, coming upon an earth that God is pouring out upon the earth. A judgment of God to the earth. Notice the direction. It's from him toward the earth. Wrath of God. On, an un, on a world that has rejected him, have, has given them every opportunity to repent of their sin, and yet God is going to judge the earth. And then he's going to set up his millennial reign, and the next few chapters, 20 and 21, speak of the millennial reign of Christ, and, the, and then this final earth, the earth that we live in now, and all the heavens, the heavens and the earth will be consumed, like Peter tells us in his letter, with fervent heat, and then chapter 21 tells us that a new heavens, 21, 22, tells us that a new heavens and a new earth will be created, and that is the eternal state for you and I. Isn't that awesome? That is the outline of the book. And there's a lot of things in between that we're going to have a lot of fun going through. A lot of fun going through. Does that make sense? So write the things which you have seen, John. Okay, I've seen you, Lord. You talked about this, uh, who these lampstands are. You talked about who the stars are. The stars aren't angels because if you think of this, for those of you who think it, the word is angelos, but you know what it means? If an angel, if, if God is writing a corrective letter to his angels, there's a problem. Does that make sense? When he writes to Ephesus, godly angels don't sin. Angels that sin are called what? Demons. <laughs> so God is not writing this to an angel. He's writing this to a pastor, to a messenger of those churches. Because there were things that they did well, and there were things that they needed to correct, right? Does that make sense? And so now we have an understanding of who these are. In chapter 1, we find out who the lampstand represents, who the stars represent. We find out uh, one of the greatest descriptions in all of the Bible of who Jesus is in his glorified state. We don't know anything of what Jesus looked like. You see those paintings, you know, you see them everywhere. And Jesus has this, you know... Uh, you know, I could show you pictures. Whenever I, when I say a picture of Jesus, every one of you have in your mind's eye what Jesus looks like because you've seen pictures of him. They're on Instagram. He's taking selfies with John by the fire. No, there's no description. In fact, the Bible says that he was not really a handsome man. His beauty was not on the outside for everyone to go, wow, he must be the Messiah. no. It was quite the opposite, because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. Therein lies the treasure, is what was inside of Jesus, was the very nature of God, God in the flesh, the Word become flesh, dwelling among us. That is where the beauty was. And see, isn't that a good lesson for us, not to judge a book by its cover? We were in, uh, recently, yesterday actually, we were in uh, Barnes & Noble, and um, my daughter was looking at some books, and, and you know, and, and they love they love young people because they have all these beautiful bindings and the gold leaf paper. And you know, wow, that is just so cool. How much is it? Fifty bucks? Oh, it's worth at least a hundred. I mean, she's not that naive by any means, but very beautiful ornate books on the on the outside. And we, I, I had to tell her. I said, "Honey, you got to be careful because a lot of times, you know, they, they they know what attracts the eye. They know how to sell a book, but it's what's inside that's most important, right?" 
You cannot judge a book by its cover. You have to look inside. You have to look inside and take a look. You have to take a look. And so, John writes, write the things which you have seen. The glorification of Christ. Let me read it to you again just because it's so wonderful. Verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and on the midst and in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Aren't you glad that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us? Is he not? Isn't that what he says? He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus walks among the seven golden candlesticks, meaning he walks among the church, and he should never have to knock. There should never be a knock. Hey, can I come in? No, the door of every church should be wide open, saying, Lord, you come and you teach us. You give us unrestricted access to you and your word. It's the thing that we need today, folks. We need the word of God. We don't need to be entertained. We are the most entertained group of people on the planet, especially in this country. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment. Everybody needs entertainment. After a long day on Sunday, be honest with you, I like to come home and I crash on the couch. And I grab a thing of ice water and a bag of chips, and I'm just like, ugh. Ask my family, they know. Because I'm brain dead after Sunday. I'm spent, and that's what I want to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? We don't need any more entertainment. What we need is godly instruction. We need the word of God. We need the word of God. We don't need conjecture. We want the word of God. Again, Read the word of God. In fact, the word, the Bible says that this idea of read here, um, blessed is he who reads, it literally means read out loud. That's literally what it means, to read out loud. So the next time you're at your office appointment, and we'll get into the the thing here, we'll end here. I want to read that, that verse again, or those verses that describe Jesus in his glorified state. But the next time you're on a bus, Next time you're waiting in line at the DMV. Next time you're in line at Bill Gray's. See what will happen if you pull out your phone and open your Bible app. Start reading it out loud. Watch if they don't come and take you and put, your, put the straps on you and take you, <laughs> take you out. <laughs> but read it. Read it. I would encourage you this week, read. See if you can read the whole entire book. Don't stop to study it yet. You can. You can do that on your own time. But read it from beginning to end. I need to do this too. and I need to do it several times. Read it from beginning to end and read it again. And we're going to go through it again and we're going to study. We're going to tear this thing apart, Lord willing, and look at this. I am so excited. Are you excited? I am so looking forward to this. I can't stand it. Honestly, I just, don't you love the word of God? What peace it brings to your heart, doesn't it? To know that you're reading what God has told you is a blessing. Why is that? Because God wants to bless you. I don't know about you, but in the time that I'm living in today, the time that we're living in today, don't you want to be blessed? Don't you want to do anything you can to say, Lord, I want your blessing on me and my house, on my family. I need your blessing, God, because all around I'm inside is turmoil. I'm looking at all the things going on with the coronavirus and then the impeachment and all this other stuff and it's got so many people wound up so tight and the Lord just wants to unwind you. Will you let him bless you? If you want a blessing, read the book of Revelation. 
Don't be worried about what you can't understand. There are a lot of things that none of us understand. Even the most brilliant Bible scholars on the planet, when we start looking at these creatures in chapter 9, you know, who knows what these things are like. There's a description, but it defies logic, so we just we read it and we we can't really guess about what the you know what this is. Whatever it is, it's demonic in nature. That's good enough for me. I don't really like to study demons too much. But let's read. Let's end here. And then next week, we'll actually get into the book. <laughs> um, let's read verses 12 down through the last part. And he says, Then I turned. John says, I turned and I s- to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. I love this description. You know, this when you're having a bad day, when you're feeling like, you know what, life's just getting the better of me today, read this and get carried away with it because this is who you're going to see. You're going to see what John saw and what he's describing to us. You're going to see him one day face to face. You're going to see him And we are going to fall flat on our faces. It's going to be a wonderful thing. The reverence, the awe that he demands. Christ himself. He says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Think about that. You can look outside and get an idea. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, just the purity, the radiance. Can you imagine the, the blazing holiness? I mean, it's, it's, it's completely pure. There's nothing in it. There's no alloys in this flame of fire. It's just, it's a beam of unrestricted holiness. Can you, does that just drive you insane to think about? And yet he does it in his gentleness, and he is so gentle, but yet his very character, we, you know, we would just fall apart if we didn't have a new body. But notice, his hair were, and his, were like white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I love that. His feet were like fine brass. As if, there's our simile again, as if refined in the furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. Is it going to sound like many waters? I don't know, but it's going to sound something so thunderous and so magnificent. It's like the Niagara Falls, when you're standing there on the, on the end there, and you get out there and you hear it, it's just deafening. It gets your attention. And he had in his right hand the seven stars, which are the pastors, the messengers. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This sword is like what they would have. It's like an Excalibur. This is not the kind of sword, the small little daggers that they would have in short-term or short uh uh, range combat like the Romans would have. This would be a sword like an Excalibur where you pull that thing out of your back and this thing is, is way up there. Anybody see uh, Lord of the Rings? And he pulls that and that comes out. It's a death blow. His word is like that. 
A sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. Have you looked up at the sun on a summer day? I remember as a kid, I nearly blinded myself. I did something stupid, and I took off my glasses and said, I'm going to look at the sun as long as I can. Doesn't that sound like a fool's errand? I took off the glasses because it might just burn my eyes out, you know, with the reflection going through here like a compass, you know, or one of those little magnifiers. So I looked up at the sun, and I'm like... You know, we had contests. Who could look at it long enough? And your eyes are burning. You've got this migraine. It's stupid. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Only boys do that. See, girls are much too smart for that kind of thing. But when I saw him, notice this. I fell at his feet as dead. I love that. That's just reverence. That's awe. That's amazing. But he laid his right hand on me, and he always did that. All of his servants, when they were in his presence, we would all fall at his feet as dead, but he always put his right hand and say, don't be afraid. Stand. And see, isn't that just Jesus? Isn't that the love of God? And see, we got that to look forward to as we get into this. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited. And so let's stand together. And again, this week your assignment is to read the entire book. Read the entire book. Don't stop to circle words and underline phrases unless you want to. But just read it. Just get through it in one setting or a couple days if you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, for your word. We thank you for this book that we're about to read. Lord, you promised that we would be blessed as a result of reading this book and as, as a result of hearing it. Lord, we desire that. Your blessings are the best. Lord, your word says that you daily load us with benefits. And Lord, this is certainly a benefit, the blessing of God upon our life. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that you would set us on fire again. Lord, that you would do the new work in each of our hearts, Lord. Lord, as we consider this image of you, which is real, Lord, your eyes are like a flame of fire. Would you burn a hole, Lord, in everything that is unholy within us? Burn a hole, Lord, and help us to submit to you, to love you for who you are. Lord, to gather at your feet and to just completely fall apart at your feet, knowing that you're a merciful Savior, you're a merciful God. Lord, how we love you, how we thank you so much for your great grace. Lord, encourage my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that they would be blessed this week as they read. As I read, may we come together with a smile a little bit bigger or quite a bit bigger than than, than today. Next week, may our hearts be lifted May we grow in our, in our learning, in our trust of you more and more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.